Thank you for the good singing. Go ahead and dismiss our young people now. And I want to encourage you to take your Bible and go to Hebrews in chapter number 9. Hebrews in chapter 9. We are continuing along in our study of the book of Hebrews. We've been making great headway. We went through chapter 7, the whole chapter in one setting. And then we went through all of chapter 8 in one setting. And we are going to attempt to do just that this morning and go through chapter 9 here in just one setting. And I don't think this will... Um, be as lengthy of a message as last week, but um, I do want to. Uh, I do want this to be a help to you. I think that really in my study in the book of Hebrews, this has been one of the most personally enriching studies that I can remember in the last several years um, of my preaching, and so it's been a blessing, and I'm, I'm thankful for it. I, I know in the past, I guess back in in 2007, I preached. Um, through a bit of Hebrews in uh, in the latter chapters of Hebrews, but not in the length of my ministry. I had preached through the entire book of Hebrews. This has been such a tremendous encouragement to my life, and I hope it's been been helpful to you as well. And so I want to give you just a, a little bit of review before we move into chapter 9. And this is going to be important for us to lay the groundwork of what we're talking about. And so we've been talking about Jesus, our great high priest. And not only Jesus as our high priest, but the superiority of his high priestly ministry. And so we have understood from chapter 7, the writer there, he proves that Christ priest. Uh, Christ's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. It is better than the priesthood of Aaron because it is of a different order. And so there was the order after Aaron, that Levitical priesthood, but then there was another order, the order after Melchizedek. And then we recognize that Melchizedek's priesthood was a type, an example of the eternal high priestly ministry of Christ. It is an everlasting priesthood. So Christ's priesthood is superior to Aaron's because it is forever. It is eternal. Aaron died, but Christ lives forever. The eighth chapter, we talked about Christ's priesthood is better because it is administered through a better covenant. And so we described and set forth the teaching in the Bible of the new covenant. Now the new covenant, it stood in contrast to the old, to the first covenant to the law. And we talked about the superiority of that covenant. Again, it is a covenant. The new covenant is a covenant that's been made between God and the nation of Israel. But you and I, as believers in Christ, we are beneficiaries to the promises of that covenant becoming of the seed of Abraham through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we talked about that last week. And then chapter 9, the high priestly ministry is superior because it is administered from a better sanctuary. It is administered from a better sanctuary. And so the contrast that's made in chapter 9 is the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly tabernacle, the one in the heavens, not made with hands. And so Christ is the minister, is the high priestly minister of a better or from a better tabernacle. And so that's where we arrive in chapter number 9. And so I hope you'll, you'll follow me along in the chapter. And so 
I want to try to divide up the chapter for you to understand, and really the first 10 verses, that, that's what we'll talk about first, the first 10 verses lay out the, the, the divisions, it lays out the, the furnishings of the earthly tabernacle. And so there is a description of what the earthly tabernacle, the one where the ceremonial law was carried out, where the sacrifices were made. And so that description of its setting and its furnishings is given here in, in the first 10 verses. And then it's contrasted through the rest of the chapter with another tabernacle, a more perfect tabernacle, or as I've titled the message, the true tabernacle. And that title comes actually from chapter 8 in a verse that we read last week. I won't go back there, but we're going to focus on this contrast this morning. And so I want you to look there at verse number 1, and we're going to step right in in our verse-by-verse -verse study in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 1. The Bible says there, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. And so let's stop right there already at verse number one. As we're talking about this sanctuary, this tabernacle, the Bible calls it here a worldly sanctuary. And so again, we're talking about a physical structure that was built under the direction by the parameters that God gave to his people, how to build it, how to set things in order. But yet it is a, a worldly sanctuary. And so in these next verses, there's something that I, I want you to, uh, to, to take note of. As we're talking about this, this worldly sanctuary, as we're focusing in on how it is described here, there's going to be some reasons, four reasons particularly, of why the true sanctuary is better than the worldly sanctuary. And so we're going to describe these as we go throughout this, this first part of the passage. So Paul gives, if you want to write this in your notes, Paul gives four reasons why the earthly sanctuary is inferior. Uh, and so the, the first one here, I think you can maybe uh, draw conclusions after we read the first verse. The first sanctuary or the earthly sanctuary is inferior because it is earthly. It is worldly. Now, that word worldly that is used here, it simply means this, if you want to write it down in your notes, of this world. It is worldly, and I know we think of the sense of worldly as like the, the, the sinful philosophies and mentalities, the way of life of the people of this world, the ungodly, but it's used in the sense here of, of the earthly or of, of this world, of the physical creation. And so God gave that pattern, as I mentioned earlier. God set into order how he wanted the tabernacle to be built, this, this worldly sanctuary. And so here it is, uh, it is established, number one, it is inferior because it is, it is of this world. Now, I want to show you a couple of slides here. This will help us understand. Uh, this is a picture of the tabernacle that is a replica, and this is located there in Timna Park in Israel. And so this is a replica of the tabernacle that, uh, that is built here. And 
And so uh, I may come back to that one there, but uh, I, I believe this is still available for, for tours. You can go in and, and see um, how they have it set up um, in this way. And this next picture here, if you can see, I know it has a little bit of small writing on there, but this next picture, this is the floor plan or the layout of, of the tabernacle. And so as we read the next couple of verses, this will help us to better understand exactly what we're talking about. Again, we're talking about here a, a worldly and earthly tabernacle, and this is where the ceremonial law was carried out and sacrifices, again, prescribed and ordered by God. And um, this is, is given. Not only was it laid out or, or, or built by that, those parameters, but it also was built with, with earthly materials. It was built with, uh, with materials of this creation. And so let's look at the next couple of verses and we'll describe the arrangement of all the furnishings here of the tabernacle. Look at verse number two. The Bible says there, For there was a tabernacle made the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, I want you to, in your notes, write this down. We see that that phrase there, the first. For there was a tabernacle made the first. And then over in verse number six, jump ahead for a moment, it says, Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And so that phrase there, the first, or verse 6, the first tabernacle, it is talking about that first section of the tabernacle, the, the holy place. And so if you are looking there at the floor layout, if you see that pink line, there's th three squares there. Those are the pillars, and there is that pink line. That is the veil there. And that first section at the top there, it says the holy place. And so that first section called here the first or the first tabernacle, that phrase the first, it's talking about that first section, the holy place. And so verse 2, it says, For there was a tabernacle made the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid around about with gold, wherein was the golden pot um, that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, that second thought here in, in verse number 7, I want you to see, uh, verse 7 it says this, But unto the second went the priest. Now, um, if you'll see, we talked about the first veil there. The, you see the first three pillars, and there's that pink line there, the veil. You enter in through, and that's the holy place, the first section. And then there's another veil, that next pink line that you see on the screen. And that enters into, through that veil, the holy of holies, or the holiest of holies, the, the, the holy place, the most holy place there. And, and so this is talking about this second section, verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. And so that's that second section. And you can see the furnishings as described in these. And verse number 7, go back down there with me to verse 7. And the Bible says there, But, the second, but into the second went 
the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. And so here is something important for us to recognize that they uh, went in there, the priests were allowed to go into the first section, the, the holy place, but only the high priest was allowed to go in through that second veil into the most holies, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement to make the sacrifice there, not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sins. And so we see kind of the, the layout here, the, the furnishings, and uh, this is described, giving us a clear picture of the, of the worldly, the earthly tabernacle as, as set up and established under God's command and His parameters and fashioned in the way in which He prescribed. Now, we're talking about the four reasons that the earthly tabernacle is inferior to the true tabernacle. That first one there, again, because it is earthly. Now, the second reason is because it was not accessible to all the people. It was not accessible. Remember, we talked about this, that the priest could come into the holy place... Uh, but yet only the high priest could go behind that veil into the most holy. And this place, this was a place that was to represent the truth, the presence of God. And so in the tabernacle there, we see by way of type or of shadow that this tabernacle was not accessible to all of the people. Only the priest could go into that core of the holy place, and only the high priest into the holy of holies, and on one day of year, on that day of atonement. And what I want you to recognize in the inferiority of this is that the people, all the people didn't have access to God. Only, only the priest, only the, the high priest into the very presence of God. And, and that is what we're to take note of. The tabernacle was earthly, it was made out of earthly materials, which opens our eyes to the fact that it could fall apart, it decays, and, 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 and all these things. And then the second thing there, it wasn't accessible to all the people. The nation of Israel is pictured here not having access, everyone having access to God in this manner. And so the third thing there is really, I've been kind of pointing out this already, is that it was temporary. It was temporary. It was not forever. It had its place and its time, but there would come a day when it would be abolished. There would come a day when the sacrifices would end, namely because the Lord Jesus Christ was sacrificed once and for all. He laid down His life for the sins of all men. And so look there at verse number 8. The Bible says, The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. Again, that's what we're talking about, the access there, while at the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present. And so this was to be an example, a shadow, a figure for things to come. It was a figure for the times then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that made not, um, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to his conscience. So it was temporary, and that opens our eyes to the fourth reason here. It could not change the heart of people. 
It cannot change the heart of people. Now, these ceremonial sacrificings and uh, these rituals, if you will, that, that, uh, that were carried out in a very precise and ordered, man, uh, ordered uh, means and way, these, these sacrifices, what they would do would, would be to give temporary cleansing. Temporary cleansing. And, and really, in a bit more detail, only the, the exterior, outward cleansing. Now, this is important for us to recognize. Uh, the ceremonies of the tabernacle, they dealt with the externals and not the internal man or the inner man, the conscience. And so these temporary acts, they pointed to, they waited for something much better. So we have those four reasons why the earthly tabernacle is inferior to the true tabernacle. Number one, it is earthly. Number two, it was not accessible to all the people. Number three, it was temporary. And number four, it could not change hearts. It was only to affect the, the exterior. It was for, again, external obedience. And, and so... Again, I want us to, to recognize the inferiority of that earthly tabernacle. Now, when we get into verse number 11, or uh, let's read verse 10 and then we'll move on. The Bible says, "...which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation." Again, it's pointing to something coming that is, that is better. This was only temporary, only a picture, only a shadow of things to come. And then verse number 11, notice this phrase, "...but Christ." Now, we have a great contrast that's being said here. "...but Christ." So there's a contrast between those ministers, those priests, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in verse 11, But Christ being come, an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Notice what it says, Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And so here next, this focus changes. The, the direction changes. We have been looking at the earthly tabernacle and its furnishings and its ceremonies and all that it stood for, but now there's a contrast being made between those priests and their ministering and our great high priest and his ministering. And not only his ministering, but his ministering in the superior tabernacle, the one not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. Now, here... I want you to see as we go down through, there are four reasons for why it is better. So there's four reasons why the earthly was inferior. There are four reasons why the heavenly or the true tabernacle is better or superior. Number one, as we have already looked at in verse number 11, it is not earthly, but it is heavenly. It is not made with man's hands. But it's made by God. It's made here, as the Bible says, not made with hands or the physical hands, but it is here of, of heaven. Now, verse 11, it says, But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this 
building. And so that, that word building, let me just say a few things about that word. And that word building that we have, the, the Greek word that's translated building here, 11 other times in our Bible uh, is translated to the word creation, or excuse me, creature, and, and then six times to creation. And so building, creature, creation. And so building here, and this is the, the only time that that word is translated to the word building, but what it entails here is anything that is created. Anything that is created. That, that is the idea here. And so here, this is a, a tabernacle that is not of this creation, if you will. Not of this creation. Not of this building. Verse number 12, it says, Neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now we looked at that first reason why um, not only is the heavenly, the true tabernacle better, but again we're pointing to the superiority to the ministry of Jesus Christ from that tabernacle. The second one is it is effective for changing lives. It is effective for changing lives. Remember, the first tabernacle was effective for a temporary basis in the covering of sins. It was for a temporary basing, uh, basis addressing the externals, the outward obedience. But the Bible speaks of something here that has an effect upon the heart. The Bible speaks into some, of something here that is in contrast to dead works and you know, this is the important subject of the chapter. This is, the, I guess, the primary focus of, of this chapter. The, the great contrast is, is set forth. Now, these Old Testament ceremonies, um, these, these Old Testament sacrifices, they brought about, and I want you to remember this, maybe you'll write it down in your notes, they brought about temporary cleansing for the outward, but could never reach the heart could never reach the conscience. You now the Bible says that the blood of Christ, it says, but the blood of Christ that was shed once for all, once, purged the conscience. And, and it gives this believer a, an unchanging standing with God. Now as we talked about the temporary standing before God, these sacrifices had to continue on because they were only effectual temporarily, uh, on the temporary basis. And so they continued day after day and year after year. They had no lasting change that reached the heart. But the Bible speaks here of the sacrifice made by the Lord Jesus Christ. How much more, look at verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, these Jewish ceremonies, they were but dead works in compared or in comparison 
to the living relationship that was established with God through this new covenant, through this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to look with me here at the um, next part of this chapter, and this is another uh, somewhat of a division in the chapter here in verse 15 through 23 there is an illustration that is used and the illustration that is used is of a testament or a a will and so this illustration is used to bring forth a very important point look at the verse there in verse 15 it says and for this cause he is the mediator of the new testament again we're talking about this new covenant here is the mediator of a new testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressors that were made under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For the testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise... It is of no strength at all while the testator liveth, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Now, let's stop there for a few moments. And again, the example, the illustration of a testament or a will. Now, notice this is a very understandable point that is made. It says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. And so this here, again, it's the, the last will and testament that is made. Now, when someone writes out a will or a testament, their last will and testament there, um, they lay out how their estate is to be appropriated, how it is to be meted out, if you will. But that will, that testament, does not take effect. It, it has not become effective until the testator or the one who wrote the will, the one whose will it is, dies. So, you know, when there is a family member who writes out a will, again, the estate is, is not meted out until the person dies. And so that is the example here. This testament we're talking about here, it is not established, it is not meted out in the sense until the testator has died. Now Christ established the new covenant, this new testament that he's made with the nation of Israel. But for it to take its effect, someone must die. Christ, the testator, must die. The Bible says, verse 17, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. And so I mentioned this earlier last week that the basis of the new covenant is the death, the shedding of blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we must understand it in that sense. Before this estate, if you will, will be meted out, then there must be the death of the testator. Verse number 18, the Bible says here, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. And so 
here he's talking about the meeting out, the dedication of the testament. So the first testament, the old covenant, it was, it was not dedicated without blood. The Bible says, verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and with scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things that are by the law purged with blood. Notice this important phrase here. And without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so we're talking about these reasons why uh, the, 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 the heavenly tabernacle is better than the earthly tabernacle. The superiority of the ministry of the heavenly tabernacle to the ministry of Aaron and the priesthood through the earthly tabernacle. And th this is important. That first covenant, it was sealed with blood. They, they sealed it with blood. The, the, sanctuary, the sanctuary was dedicated with blood. The, the blood of animals, though... Uh, it could only bring this ceremonial cleansing that we've been talking about. Only the temporary cleansing. It was not an inward cleansing, but Christ's blood is effective in the purifying of God's people. The purifying of, of, of heavenly things in verse number 23. And so that third reason there, we're talking about... The reason why the heavenly is greater than the earthly, the third reason there, it fulfilled the figures, it fulfilled the shadows that we learned about here. Now, the figures and the shadows are types, they are analogies of the better things to come. So the sacrifices of animals, the, the, the ceremonies that, went, that the uh, nation of Israel carried out, these were all figures or types of something far better to come. Something that would not only bring a temporary or a ceremonial cleansing, something that was uh, you know, done over and over again, but this is something that would bring a true purifying, a right standing, an everlasting standing with God. This was something that would not have to be continually done over and over again, year after year, but this was a sacrifice that was good once and for all to secure the salvation of God's people. And so the, this tabernacle, the heavenly, it fulfills the figures and the shadows. This was... If you will, this was the redemptive analogy that God used throughout history, the history of the nation, that would point to the coming of the Messiah who would lay down his life for the sins of the people. Let me give you that last reason. That last reason, I've been talking about it, but it is based on a complete sacrifice. The ministry of the heavenly tabernacle is based upon a complete sacrifice 
sacrifice. Look at verse number 25 there with me. The Bible says, Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. Now, I want you to notice there's a couple keys there. This was a continual sacrifice. This was something that word every, or that phrase every year should stand out in the great contrast. Nor yet, verse 25, that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, this is an important subject as well, the superior sacrifice of Christ. So important that all of chapter 10 is dedicated to this superior sacrifice. Or I would say most of chapter 10 is dedicated to the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this ministry from a greater, a better, the true tabernacle is based upon a complete sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. His work is finished. You know what Jesus said on the cross? He said, it is finished. You know, some of the details, and we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. I talked about that, that, that second veil there, the access to the presence of God. You know, when Jesus was crucified and he cried, it is finished, that veil was rent in two, in twain. The picture there is open access to God. Now, this is so important for us. His work is finished. His work is complete. In Jesus Christ, we have the perfect, once-for-all, sufficient sacrifice that has been made for the sins of man. We need search for no other. We, we need no, uh, no, no animal sacrifice. We need no personal or, or self-righteousness. He is our righteousness. He is our sacrifice. All we need is Him. Now, this finished work, this complete sacrifice, it's been made. And, you know, the obligation is before you and I today. We can recognize Him for who He is and whom he has presented himself to be, to receive him and his work upon the cross, his shedding of blood, his death and payment for our sins, his resurrection from the dead as the true and living high priest forever. We can receive him as Savior. And you know, the Bible points to something that we greatly anticipate. The work has been finished, but the Bible says in verse 27, And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. The Bible says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Now what we are waiting for now is the appearance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. Listen, He is coming to catch away 
His church. Now we talked about God's program with Israel and the establishing of the new covenant. And we talked about the setting aside of Israel and the judicial blindness until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And listen, once the last part of the body of Christ, the church, is come to know Christ, is placed in Christ, listen, the Lord will come again. The Lord will catch His bride away from this earth I love what the passage says here. It says, and uh, in verse 28, it says, And unto them, listen, that's us that have received Christ as Savior. This is speaking of God's people. Unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, again, let's not... Uh, Take the passage out of context. Again, the context is the new covenant. The context is the superiority of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, the ministering of the new covenant from the true sanctuary. And again, this has context to the nation of Israel, his dealing with Israel as well. But when he comes again, listen, the Bible says, appeared the second time without sin. Now we know it's not talking about Jesus being sinful or coming without sin the second time in that sense that he's coming without sinfulness, but here it has the idea he's coming this time not to to deal with sin or to pay for sin, not to make the sacrifice yet over again, but unto salvation. Listen, this is t talking about the salvation or the saving from the presence of sin. The, the, the securing of our eternal presence with God. Now, he has is, he is entered the second veil into the, the presence of God. And listen, he's going to bring us one day into the very presence of God as well. Listen, that is what we have to look forward to. That is what we, we, we look with great anticipation to this morning. Now, I want you to recognize this. Jesus Christ, our great high priest, is superior to all. The Bible teaches in the book of Colossians, the, you know, the primary focus there, I would say the main topic of Colossians is the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is above all things. And you know, you and I this morning, we need to, with our heart, with our life, give a great acknowledgement and recognition of our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. I've stated this over and over again, that He is all we need. He far surpasses anything that our heart could long for in this world. He far surpasses any uh, human uh, ambition or, or human search for spiritual fulfillment or, uh, or to be spiritually fulfilled. Listen, we can, we can search this world up and down, right and left, east and west, north and south, but He is all that we need. I wonder today, are you patiently awaiting His return? Are you, are you looking unto Jesus, as the Bible says, the author, and as we talked about in verse 28, the finisher of our faith? This morning, I, I want to ask you in closing, and we're going to stop a little bit early, it looks like this morning. I want to I ask you in closing, 
Do you know for sure that you're saved and on your way to heaven? If someone were to ask you today, if you were to die, if, if you were to step out this door, and listen, we're not promised another day. We're not promised another breath. Just the fact that we're breathing God's air here until this point is an is a illustration, is a proof of God's grace and mercy. But we're not promised another day. If we were to walk out of this place this morning and our physical and earthly life ends, where are you going? Where will you go when your soul and spirit leave this body, when the body returns back to the dust of the ground from which it came? Where will you spend all of eternity? Listen, there's only two options. There's only two options. Those that are born again, those that have put their faith and trust in this finished work, the shedding of blood for the payment of sin for all of mankind, if we have put our faith and trust in the sufficiency of Christ's blood to pay for our sin, to take our sin away, and we are trusting in Him, His death and resurrection, if we are trusting by faith in Him for everlasting life, listen, our destination will be in the presence of God for all eternity. If we're here this morning and we're uncertain, if we're here this morning and we've rejected, we've decided I'll do things my own way, or I'll just wait and find out what happens when I die, listen, it will be too late then. You'll either spend eternity in the presence of God, in the presence of God's people, or you'll step out from this life into an eternity of separation from God. You know, the Bible speaks of a literal place called the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a place that was not made for you and I. Listen, it, it, was, it was not a place that, were, that was designed for you and I to suffer from all eternity. It is not where we have to go. But it's where man who rejects Christ chooses to go in separation from God. It is a judgment, a payment for our sin. The Bible says this, for the wages of sin is death. Not only a, a physical death, but it speaks of a spiritual and eternal death. A, a death that is carried out for our eternity. A, a death without annihilation. A death that goes on forever and ever in separation of God in conscious torment in the lake of fire. So I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody to go there. I don't want anyone to step out of this life into eternity, into a Christless eternity without God to face the judgment of God because of sin. Listen, Christ has paid that payment for you and I. And by faith in Christ, His death and resurrection, we can have everlasting life. The Bible says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the only way of heaven. There is no other way. There's no back door. There's no way to sneak in. We either go through Christ and His payment for our sin, or we'll spend eternity in separation from God. Listen, where are you going this morning? I'm not saying this to condemn you. The Bible says that 
those that are in sin are condemned already. We are awaiting the judgment of God. Listen, I'm not saying this to belittle anybody. I'm not saying any of this because I think that I am better than you. Listen, I'm saying this because that is the truth. It is the truth that can set each and every one of us free from the bondage of sin. It can set us free from the penalty of our sin. Listen, one day, if we trust in Christ, we'll be set free from the presence of our sin. That's what the end of this passage is all about. Listen, I want to encourage you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, listen, don't put it off. Don't, don't procrastinate in this thing because you may not have another day. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to bow our heads. We'll seek the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we'd recognize the superiority of the true tabernacle. The tabernacle not made with hands in the heavens. Lord, we'd recognize the superiority of our great high priest, superior, superior in his order. After the order of Melchizedek, an eternal priesthood a high priest that lives and will never die. Father, I pray that we'd recognize the ministry of our great high priest, the ministry that's presented before us here in the new covenant. And though we recognize through the teaching of your word, the new covenant was established with Israel as the seed of Abraham, as faith or as believers in Christ, we have the benefit of this new covenant. Lord, there's been made a once and for all sacrifice for our sin. Lord, a sacrifice that doesn't only affect the external through outward obedience, but it reaches the heart. Lord, as we turn to you as Savior, you come in. And Lord, making us, as the Bible says, a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Father, I pray that if there be anybody here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that they will come to know you today, that they will bow their knee, bow their heart, and trust you before it's eternally too late. Father, I pray that, Lord, they will recognize that it's not in the presence of us or in this church house or this place of worship that they must come to an altar to receive Christ as Savior, but, Lord, they could come to you as access has been made available through Jesus Christ, Lord, they could come to you through Christ for the saving of their souls and everlasting life. Father, I pray that you'd burden their heart. Lord, you bring about conviction of sin and help them to understand the only remedy for that sin and its consequences, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for all you do, Lord. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to take our hymnals and we're going to turn here uh, to page number...